to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Well, the report that the country has been waiting for The report from Inspector General Michael Horowitz on the FBI's handling of the Russian investigation. That report was released this past Monday. And it was a shocker. Everybody was talking about the release of that report and how it would probably be a denunciation of a list of people who had taken advantage of their positions in the FBI to carry out oh, unsavory and even illegal activities against President Trump as part of the deep state. But that isn't what happened. According to the 476-page document, investigators found no political bias and no intentional misconduct relating to the FBI for the Pfizer warrant that they requested to spy on former President Trump's campaign advisor, Carter Page. That would have been in the early months of the Russia-Russia investigation when everything bad about the president had to do with what the Democrats called collusion between Trump and Russia while the presidential campaign was still in progress. And the idea was that this collusion was for the purpose of influencing the presidential election in Trump's favor. And if you remember the whole Mueller investigation, you know, the one that lasted for two years and cost $35 million, that investigation found nothing, no collusion, no criminal behavior of any kind. Now, the Horowitz investigation was looking for evidence of misbehavior on the part of the FBI agents when they wanted to spy on the Trump campaign. And although the report did find that FBI was at fault for 17 significant, quote, omissions, unquote, and, quote, inaccuracies, unquote, within the application process, that is to say the application for a FISA warrant, they found no intentional fault. That, my friends, is shocking. Remember Peter Strzok and Lisa Page? Remember the use of the phony Steele dossier to get a FISA warrant? even after the FBI had been told that it was unreliable? And it raises more questions than it answers because all of the evidence that's been coming out over the last three years, you know, the evidence about the deceptions, the plotting, the scheming among players like Strzok, Page, Comey, they've all been apparently dismissed. Well, the report confirmed that the information contained in what was called the Steele dossier was used in the application. The dossier was compiled by former British spy Christopher Steele, and it was the basis, according to this report, for the FBI's case to surveil Page and, on a larger stage, to take down candidate Trump. But the Horowitz report fails to explain several things. Why was the Bureau able to circumvent its obligation to inform the FISA court that they had been warned that Steele's information was unreliable. They also failed to inform the court that the so-called intelligence contained in the dossier 
had been put together during the period that Steele was employed by a research firm called Fusion GPS. And that firm was working under contract to the Clinton campaign to produce opposition research on Trump. So, of course, they would be looking for the most egregious dirt that they could find. And when they couldn't find what they were looking for, they made it up and they paid for it. $168,000. In addition to that, one of the conditions for obtaining a FISA warrant is that the material on which the request is made has been verified as accurate. The Steele dossier was never verified, quite the contrary. In fact, it turned out to be totally fabricated, made up, fiction, in order to defame Trump. And even though the FBI had been warned more than once that the dossier was suspect and unverified, it did not report this on their application for a warrant. Wouldn't you think that this was an indication of intent? And then, how is it even possible for the IG's investigators to ignore it? Horowitz said that his team had, quote, reviewed over one million records and conducted over 100 interviews, unquote. But although phony intelligence and false and missing information on the FISA warrant applications were clearly visible, they did not apparently count for much because the report said that the intent was lacking. Specifically, the report said that the team, quote, did not find documentary or testimonial evidence that political bias or improper motivation influenced the decision to open the four individual investigations, unquote. But I don't believe that, and neither, it seems, does Republican Congressman David Nunes or his colleagues. Nunes has contested not only the first FISA warrant that allowed the FBI to spy on Carter Page, but also the three that followed that enabled FBI spying on former campaign advisor to candidate Trump, George Papadopoulos, former National Security Advisor, General Michael Flynn, and former Trump campaign manager, Paul Manafort. Nunes claims that the FBI misrepresented significant evidence and did not include exculpatory intelligence. Now, I had to look that word up because it's a legal term and not usually found in everyday conversation. Exculpatory means, literally, freed from blame or guilt. In other words, if that evidence had been revealed, it would have freed the president and his associates from blame or guilt. So, specifically, so specifically, Nunes criticized the FBI for failing to reveal that the evidence that they had used to support their request for a warrant came from an unverified document and that, even more damning, the document itself had been compiled as opposition research for Hillary Clinton's campaign and that it was paid for by the campaign and by the Democrat National Committee. To be fair, there was a footnote in the application that indicated that the FBI thought the dossier was part of an effort to get damning information about the Trump campaign. But that footnote failed to mention the role that was played by either the Hillary Clinton campaign or the DNC 
in contracting and paying for the phony dossier, or the fact that the so-called facts in the dossier were from an unreliable source and were unverified. Now, there's another report being prepared by U.S. Attorney for Connecticut, John Durham, for the Justice Department. His job is to conduct an inquiry into alleged misconduct and improper government surveillance on the Trump campaign during the 2016 presidential election. What's the difference between these two investigations? Well, the difference is that the Durham investigation is criminal in nature, while the Horowitz investigation is not. Durham's team is also tasked with a wider-ranging investigation that has been looking into areas that the Horowitz team wasn't looking at. Durham's team has the ability to return indictments if they're called for. Durham released an unusual statement on Monday after the release of the Horowitz report. And in that statement, he said that he disagrees with the conclusions in the Horowitz report. He said, quote, I have the utmost respect for the mission of the Office of the Inspector General and the comprehensive work that went into the report prepared by Mr. Horowitz and his staff. However, our investigation is not limited to developing information from within component parts of the Justice Department. Our investigation has included developing information from other persons and entities, both in the United States and outside the United States." Attorney General Barr agreed with Durham. He slammed the FBI's intrusive investigation. He said, quote, The Inspector General's report now makes clear that the FBI launched an intrusive investigation of a U.S. presidential candidate on the thinnest of suspicions that, in my view, were insufficient to justify the steps taken, unquote. In other words, in his view, the FISA warrant applications were based on very thin evidence. And he continued, quote, It is also clear that from its inception, the evidence produced by the investigation was consistently exculpatory. In other words, had it been known, it would have freed the president and his associates from blame or guilt. Nevertheless, continuing the quote, the investigation and surveillance was pushed forward for the duration of the campaign and deep into President Trump's administration. In the rush to obtain and maintain FISA surveillance of Trump campaign associates, FBI officials misled the FISA court, omitted critical exculpatory facts from their filings, and suppressed or ignored information negating the reliability of their principal source, unquote. And that, of course, was the Steele dossier. He continued, quote, The inspector general found the explanations given for these actions unsatisfactory. While most of the misconduct identified by the inspector general was committed in 2016 and 2017 by a small group of now former FBI officials, the malfeasance and malfeasance detailed in the inspector general's report reflects a clear abuse of the FISA process, unquote. Now, that gives us some hope that when the Durham report comes out, it will take a different position on the misdeeds, I think, that were ongoing within the FBI and beyond. So if the Durham team has reached a different conclusion from the Horowitz team, 
then the outcome may also be quite different. If Durham's report shows that crimes were committed by players in what is known as the deep state, then it may be accompanied by indictments. And these indictments, if they are the result of the investigation, may involve some very well-known people. For this, though, we will need to wait a bit. Durham's investigation will, as I said before, cover a wider inquiry into alleged misconduct and improper government surveillance on the Trump campaign during the 2016 presidential election. Former special counsel Robert Mueller acknowledged in his report that the investigators did not find evidence of a conspiracy between Trump's campaign and the Russians in 2016, in spite of their extensive investigation by the FBI. The facts have been consistently muddled and swept under the carpet by a pathologically determined Democrat leadership in the House. On Monday, a final hearing was held under the gavel of Gerald Nadler, who bullied Republicans and brought an earlier witness in to question other witnesses. This is against both protocol and tradition. But as I've mentioned before, <laughs> the rules apply differently to Democrats than they do to the rest of us. And then we come to impeachment. Ken Starr had something to say about this. He was the special prosecutor for the Bill Clinton impeachment hearings. Quote, the Democrats are defining impeachment down with no evidence of a crime. Unquote. So now on Tuesday morning, two things happen. Now on Tuesday morning, two things happened that need our attention. The first was the announcement by the Democrat leadership that two articles of impeachment have been filed against the president. And I'll get to this after our first break in a few minutes. The second thing that happened was the announcement by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that the USMCA, that's the United States-Mexico-Canada Trade Agreement, would be voted on that day with the expectation that it would pass overwhelmingly. Now remember, Nancy Pelosi is the one who for months and months has kept this bill on her desk and refused to allow it to come to the floor for a vote. She wouldn't even say when she would allow it. She simply refused. And the shocking thing about her announcement on Tuesday was that she took credit for saving that bill and handed all that credit to the Democrats. Amazing. This woman has no shame. This bill, the USMCA, was the brainchild of Donald Trump. He ran for president on this bill. It was one of the planks of his platform. And he was the one who made it happen from the beginning. Pelosi was the one who held it up. She refused to bring it to the floor, even refused to discuss it with the White House, and channeled all her efforts into bringing down the president in an impeachment fiasco that has brought shame to our country and to all the Democrats whom she has forced to support it. These are strange times we live in. The Democrats seemed absolutely fixated on destroying the president, and they are taking the country down with him. In the name of the Constitution, they are destroying everything that it stands for. Freedom of speech, which they deny to their opponents. Due process, which they refuse to let Republicans have, particularly the president, in the face of all these investigations. Unreasonable search and seizure, 
which Adam Schiff ignored, for example, when he acquired and released to the public the private telephone records of the president's attorney and another member of Congress, for example. Now, they are accusing the president, and I said we will talk about this more later, but nevertheless, it, it's relevant here. They are accusing the president of abuse of power. But I can't think of anything that would apply more to them that represents more abuse of power than what they have been doing in their investigations and in the upcoming impeachment trial in the Senate against the president and anyone who supports him. The Democrats in Congress have much to answer for, and I believe they will answer for it in November 2020. Well, that remains to be seen. Now, we're going to take a short break, but I'll be back, and I want to talk to you in some detail about the two articles of impeachment and the people and the people who have brought America to this moment of shame and crisis. So don't go away. I'll be right back. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. So now we come to Tuesday morning when the Democrats brought their articles of impeachment to the floor. The shame of their continual bad behavior came to a climax on Tuesday. It just went from bad to worse. At 9 a.m. on the East Coast, Congressman Gerald Nadler, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, announced that our president had been guilty of efforts to solicit foreign interference in our national elections, interference, he said, that compromised our national security and the integrity of our elections and that during the inquiry, he had attempted to conceal the evidence from Congress and from the American people. And then Nadler made a stunning statement about the president. He said, quote, Our president holds the ultimate public trust, and when he betrays that trust, and here's where Nadler crosses the line by suggesting that President Trump actually did that, Quote, when he betrays that trust and puts himself before country, he endangers our democracy and he endangers our national security, unquote. I would make the argument that the president is a patriot and that he has never put himself before the country. After running the sloppiest, the most biased, and most disreputable hearings in which he broke his own rules of decorum and bullied the Republican members of his committee, Nadler has called the president a betrayer of the public trust. And after invoking the Constitution, he then proceeded to read the two articles of impeachment, both of which are vague and devoid of any particulars or specific charges. Here's what he said. You decide. Quote, 
Today, in service to our duty to the Constitution and to our country, the House Committee on the Judiciary is introducing two articles of impeachment, charging the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, with committing the high crimes of misdemeanors. The first article is for abuse of power. It is an impeachable offense for the President to exercise the powers of his public office to obtain an improper personal benefit while ignoring or injuring the national interest. That is exactly what President Trump did when he solicited and pressured Ukraine to interfere in our 2020 presidential elections, thus damaging our national security, undermining the integrity of the next election, and violating his oath to the American people. These actions, moreover, are consistent with President Trump's previous invitations of foreign interference in our 2016 presidential election. And when he was caught and the House investigated and opened an impeachment inquiry, President Trump engaged in unprecedented, categorical, indiscriminate defiance of the impeachment inquiry. This gives rise to the second article of impeachment for obstruction of Congress. Here, too, we see a familiar pattern in President Trump's misconduct. A president who declares himself above accountability, above the American people, and above Congress's power of impeachment, which is meant to protect against threats to our democratic institutions, is a president who sees himself as above the law. We must be clear, no one, not even the president, is above the law. Unquote. Now, in understanding the significance of what Gerald Nadler just said and what he didn't say, it's going to take some doing because he didn't give any specifics. He didn't say in what way the president declared himself above the law. He didn't say in what way he was caught and investigated and then employed obstruction of some kind to Congress. He didn't say what improper personal benefit the president actually derived from his so-called high crimes and misdemeanors. He didn't say, for example, how he solicited and pressured Ukraine to interfere in the 2020 presidential elections. And he didn't say what was his crime for abuse of power. I think these two articles of impeachment show a colossal lack of any kind of intelligence in terms of specifying exactly what the president's crimes actually were. These two articles of impeachment are ridiculous. They don't show any crime. They talk about the nature of the crime, but they don't specify the crime. Now that's just crazy, and I don't understand how this even holds up as, a, as any kind of legal document. So that, that's what we have to start with. Now, in understanding the significance of what he just said and what he didn't say, it's very clear that these articles of impeachment were vague and failed to mention any of the terms that the Democrats have used to describe the president's so-called wrongdoing. Prior to the articles of impeachment, these terms included bribery, extortion, quid pro quo. None of them were in the articles of impeachment. There have been some rumors around that the Democrats were using focus groups to try to find the right words to put into the articles of impeachment. And they were looking for words that would have the most emotional impact. 
Well, it turns out, I guess, if this is true, that there are words like bribery and quid pro quo didn't pass muster. And so they left them out. But in leaving them out, they also left out the actual content of the articles of impeachment. There are no crimes listed in this with any specificity. It's crazy. Nadler's recitation also failed to define his vague term of abuse of power. And it includes, it seems, in the second article of impeachment, he has turned fights over documents into an impeachable offense. He has, of course, also failed to recognize that what he is accusing the president of are actions for which the Democrats have been guilty. Now, the Democrats also fail to acknowledge Adam Schiff's own abuse of power when he criminally attained the private phone records of Rudy Giuliani, who was the president's personal lawyer, and John Solomon, a reporter who has been following this from the beginning. And his colleague, his own colleague in Congress, Devin Nunes. Now, I want to take a minute and talk about the phenomenon called projection. That means taking an action that you yourself have done and projecting it onto your adversaries as a fault or a crime. You blame your adversary for the same misdeed that you have been guilty of yourself. It's something the Democrats do all the time. And it needs to be called out. It needs attention because it gives the Democrats the ability to cast aspersions on all the wrong people for all the wrong reasons. And the Democrats are not only using it, they have weaponized it and they charge their Republican opponents with crimes that they themselves have committed, such as Biden's efforts to bribe the Ukrainian government by threatening to withhold $1 billion in U.S. loan guarantees in order to protect his son from an ongoing investigation in Ukraine. Now, we know this is undoubtedly true because Biden not only admitted it, he bragged about it. And he was the one who withheld the loan guarantees unless the Ukraine government agreed to fire the prosecutor who was investigating his son. Was this quid pro quo? You bet it was. And was it abuse of power? Did Joe Biden use his status as vice president of the United States to show muscle to Ukraine for investigating his son? It was that too. And yet, Biden hasn't faced any music at all regarding his actions. So when the Democrats accuse President Trump of using quid pro quo against Ukrainian President Zelensky, they're really accusing him of something former Vice President Joe Biden did and projecting it on him. We've all read the transcript of the famous or infamous telephone call between Trump and Zelensky. It's clear that there was no quid pro quo there, and both men have confirmed that. But when the Democrats decided that they needed a new impeachable crime, that is what they decided to use. Projection. Now I'd like to talk about something that we haven't discussed yet on the Friedman Report, but I've been thinking about it for a long time. 
term limits. And you know, people like Jerry Nadler and Adam Schiff, <laughs> they make me think about it a lot. Okay, so a bunch of years ago, I ran for Congress in the 5th District in Massachusetts. I lost. I was running against longtime Democrat Congressman Marty Meehan. Now, he first ran on a term limits platform in 1992, and he vowed to stay in Congress only two terms. But he stayed longer than that, much longer. Maybe he arrived in Washington as a young man with good intentions, and then, after he found out how comfortable and cushy it is to be a congressman, he stayed and became a millionaire. He left in the middle of his term in 2007, after seven and a half terms, 15 years. He couldn't wait the extra few months to leave at the end of his term. Instead, he burdened his district and his constituents with the cost of a midterm election because he had a better offer from the University of Massachusetts. And what about his constituents? <laughs> Who cares? So when he left Congress, he was reported to still have some $4 million in his campaign account. And by all accounts, he kept it. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's just the way it is. And it's wrong. And Marty Meehan isn't an isolated case. When the Founding Fathers first served in the federal government, they called themselves, most of them did, citizen legislators. They saw their role as serving their districts in Congress for a limited period of time and then going back to their farms and their law practices and their shops and their families and letting other men take over. No, I'm not being misogynistic here, I'm just historical because back then they were all men. Women didn't even get the right to vote, no less run for office, until 1920, only a hundred years ago in a country that's more than 240 years old. But I digress. Citizen legislators were a really good idea. And for some time, it worked pretty well. Not everyone went back home, but at least that was the plan. Today, we have people in Congress who haven't held another job in many, many years, decades. For example, by the time he retired earlier this year, Congressman John Dingell had served 59 years and 21 days in Congress. Robert Byrd was still in office when he died in 2010, and he had served in both Congress and the Senate in a career spanning 57 years and 176 days. In the history of our government, incredibly, 56 people have served in Congress or the Senate or both for more than 40 years, and 113 people have served for at least 36 years. It's too much, and I'll tell you why. The longer our legislators remain in office, the more seniority they have, which means the more power they have. Take Nancy Pelosi, for example. She's a Democrat from California who was first elected to Congress in 1987. That means she's been in Congress for 32 years, and her longevity has helped to make her the highest-ranking woman in the history of Congress and the most powerful. Dianne Feinstein is another Democrat from California. She was first elected to Congress in 1992. So was Jerry Nadler, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, man we all love and respect. Hmm. 
He's been throwing his power around all week in the House impeachment hearings. And for both of them, that's 27 years in Congress. And then there's Chuck Grassley, a Republican from Iowa, who was first elected in 1981 and is now the longest-serving U.S. Senator in Washington with 38 years under his belt. To be fair, although Grassley is 86, he is still going strong, a lot stronger than anyone would have thought possible and stronger than most of his colleagues in Congress. He still holds the record for the longest uninterrupted streak of not missing a vote in the Senate with 7,600 consecutive votes cast. To say that he is the hardest working senator in Capitol Hill is probably the truth. And he still runs three miles at least four mornings a week, rain or shine. In 2017, when he was only 82, he introduced 64 bills, the second highest in the Senate for that year. So to be fair, at least he is giving his constituents their money's worth. The same cannot be said for Pelosi or Schiff or Nadler, who have wasted more than two years and millions of taxpayer dollars to chase their nemesis, the man who beat Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential election, and try, keep trying, to get him out of the White House, whatever the cost. Both Feinstein and Pelosi come from parts of California with the most egregious homeless crisis in the country. And they have done nothing to ease the pain in their own districts. So let's talk about term limits. What will they accomplish? How will they make a difference? Well, first of all, term limits will eliminate the unfair practice of longevity equaling power. The way it is now, if you're a newbie coming in as a freshman congressman, your power is limited. Unless you are shamelessly arrogant and pushy, like members of the squad, for example, and you're not willing to take the time to learn about the processes in Congress, it will take time before most freshmen can reasonably have the authority to make waves for their own constituencies, and will often be forced by power brokers in their own party, like Pelosi, for example, to vote in a way that directly opposes the interests of their constituents. In other words, the voters have unequal representation in Congress because the people who represent them don't have the power they need to make things happen. The congressmen with the most power will rule the day and in most cases line their pockets. The one with less power will have to toe the mark until they've been there long enough. Their constituents will bear the brunt. The longer a person stays in Congress, the more likely he or she will be able to accrue a sizable nest egg in his personal bank account. It's not rocket science. The more powerful a congressman is, the more influence he has, the more he has access to things like speaking fees, book, book royalties, and so forth, not to mention other sources of income that they might prefer you don't know about. It's the swamp, and it needs to be drained. One way to do this is to impose term limits, just like we have done with the president. But do you think that Congress will impose term limits on itself? And dry up all the goodies? Not likely, I'm afraid. Our high-minded founding fathers apparently didn't think that such a self-serving and corrupt bunch of people would end up populating the halls of Congress in what passes for life as usual in Washington. To put it simply, Congress must limit itself. But they won't do it. Okay, we're going to take another short break. Do you know what millionaire environmentalists say when you ask them about their private jets? Well, stay tuned for 
You just can't make this stuff up. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi-nutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The Earth people are at it again. Now, in addition to AOC's Green New Deal, Elizabeth Warren has come up with her Blue New Deal that will include the oceans. Now, I love the oceans. They're beautiful, they feed our soul, and they provide sustenance. We need them. But I think there must be a limitless barrel of wacky ideas somewhere that the Democrats are digging into and there doesn't seem to be an end to them. Now, to be honest, I'll tell you a secret. I'm a tree hugger. I have a small organic farm in the middle of nowhere, and I love my animals, my goats, and my sheep, and my chickens, and whatever else wanders up. But here's the thing. I don't tell other people how they should live, and I don't want them to tell me either. So when I heard about Google's climate change conference in Italy last summer, I was dumbfounded. It was a conference for the elite. The elite of the elite. This was a conference or a party, maybe it was just a weekend get-together, but it was billed as a climate change conference. And it was in Italy last summer. In order to get to the party, 
Get this. They came by private jets, and 114 showed up to a climate change conference. How's that for a carbon footprint? You just can't make this stuff up. So how do the super-rich environmentalists justify their use of private jets? Well, here's a couple of examples. Bill Gates, who's one of the richest men in the world, says that his large investments in green energy are enough to balance his use of his private jet whenever he needs it. He is, after all, the richest man in the world, and he says in an interview last summer, quote, I'm investing in climate change very broadly and substantial amounts of money. I don't think there's anyone doing more, but if there is, congratulations to whoever that is, unquote. In other words, I satisfy whatever guilt other people may lay on me by spending money on worthwhile projects. You don't like it? Too bad. Former Vice President Al Gore, the original doomsday global warming guru, doesn't own a private jet. But he has been roundly criticized for the extravagant use of energy in his home. Gore owns a 20-room, 4,000-square-foot mansion near Nashville, Tennessee. It has four bedrooms, eight bathrooms, and a $2,400 a month gas and electric bill. His home uses more electricity every month than the average American household uses in an entire year. You know, in his documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, Gore tells Americans to conserve energy by reducing electricity consumption at home. According to the Department of Energy, Gore's home energy usage has been estimated to be somewhere between 20 to 34 times that of the average American. But he wants the rest of us to watch our carbon footprints. You just can't make this stuff up. And then there is Barack Obama. Earlier this year, he was speaking in Alberta, Canada, and he said, quote, What is indisputable is that the planet is getting warmer. And with the current pace we are on, the scale of the tragedy that will consume humanity is something we have not seen, perhaps, in recorded history, unless we do something about it, unquote. He predicted that the oceans would rise by several feet, and the result would be that entire coastal cities would end up underwater, and billions of people would have to move away from the coastlines. But here's the thing. Obama just bought a $15 million house on Martha's Vineyard. That's an island off the coast of Massachusetts, and his new home sits on 30 acres of waterfront property. Do you think he listens to what he says? And does he believe it? My guess is probably not. You just can't make this stuff up. And then finally, there's Nancy Pelosi. Again, <laughs> after all that has been said over the past few months about the president in Ukraine, she had this to say, quote, this isn't about the Ukraine, it's about Russia. Honestly, after all this, this is how she explained it. Follow if you can. Quote, who benefited by our withholding, withholding of that military assistance? Russia. It's about Russia. Russia invading eastern Ukraine. 
over 10,000 people, maybe now 13,000 people, some of them in the absence of our conveying that military assistance that was voted in a bipartisan way by the Congress of the United States. So sometimes people say, well, I don't know about Ukraine. I don't know that much about Ukraine. Well, our adversary in this is Russia. All roads lead to Putin. Understand that, unquote. I'm not sure I understand anything of what she just said. But wait a minute. Isn't it Pelosi who announced the impeachment vote? That was not long after she told us that impeachment was too divisive, that it needed broad bipartisan support, and that if there weren't going to be any votes in the Senate, there was no point in going through with it. And then, just a few months before that, she was telling us that Trump was guilty of colluding with the Russians to steal the election. Whew. When was the last time this woman told us the truth? When was the last time she even knew what it was or cared? Maybe she just needs a good long vacation. You just can't make this stuff up. And now I want to talk a little bit about guns and the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment says, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, unquote. Some Americans seem to have a tough time understanding what that means, but there are two things that are really clear to me. The first is that when the amendment was written, a well-regulated militia meant all the able-bodied men in the town who owned firearms and drilled regularly, usually on the village green, were called a well-regulated militia. What it didn't mean was something like the National Guard that we have today. It meant exactly what they knew and what they had. And the second thing it meant was that just as the colonists had been fighting the tyranny of King George in England, the citizens of the new United States would need to be vigilant to prevent a new tyrant from taking control of their government. And for this, the well-regulated militia was necessary in order to protect and to preserve the security of a free state. When I used to live in Virginia, buying a gun was no big deal. You went to the general store and picked one off the wall or in the display case. Virginia, at least the part of Virginia where I lived, which was more or less in the center of the state and mostly rural, had a hunting culture. So guns were an essential part of life there. Fifty years ago, there were very few laws that controlled the ownership of firearms. But today, thousands of gun laws are on the books at every level, local, state, and federal. And it looks like more may be on the way. Things have changed over time, and today Virginia is considering two new gun laws that make the Virginia of 20 and 30 years ago look like the wild, wild west. Virginia is a fairly blue state, and that's okay. It's also the oldest functioning legislative body in the Western Hemisphere. It was founded in 1619. Today, the population leans slightly to the left, with a political split in the state Senate 21 to 19 in favor of the Democrats. So the arguments for new legislation will need to be tempered to ensure a majority in that very close split. But any new gun legislation is rarely the setting for tempered discussion, and the bills are highly controversial. The first one in the Virginia legislature is called HB2. 
It requires background checks on private gun sales in addition to the already in place checks on sales by licensed gun dealers. If this law passes, there is the possibility that the new law will make criminals of legal gun owners who, for example, go hunting with their friends. And while they're hunting, they lend their guns to each other as they hunt. This is common practice among hunters, but it is not sanctioned by the new bill. According to the NRA, quote, even lending a brother your rifle for a deer hunt or letting your daughter borrow a handgun for self-defense could land otherwise law-abiding Virginians with a felony conviction and up to five years in jail. Even the recipient could face up to a year of incarceration, unquote. A second bill to be concerned about is Virginia's Bill SB 16, which would ban, quote, assault firearms, quote, unquote, and limit magazine size to 10 rounds. And it requires owners of the newly illegal guns to turn them in because there is no grandfather clause. This is gun confiscation, and it may be covered by another amendment, the Fourth Amendment, against unreasonable search and seizure, although that's a discussion for another time. The law would make it illegal to possess a banned gun or magazine, and this includes some commonly owned handguns and hunting rifles. Over the last decades, motivated by a growing number of tragic mass shootings, which often occur, by the way, in gun-free zones, a rush of gun control laws have been passed all over the country. These laws are, of course, largely useless in preventing gun violence because the gun is only a tool in the hands of a zealot or an angry or deranged individual. And if a gun isn't available, well, maybe a knife is, as we just saw in London last week, or a car, or a bomb. One has only to look at the statistics. In California, Chicago, Baltimore, for example, where the gun laws are among the strictest in the country, the murder rates are also among the highest. In the last decade, legislatures around the country have been moving to pass new gun control laws, the stricter the better. And recently, several new threats to gun owners is on the horizon, in addition to those two bills I mentioned in Virginia. Last month, for example, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear Remington Arms Company's appeal to hear its case regarding the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School mass shooting. Remington appealed to the Supreme Court after the Connecticut Supreme Court rejected its arguments. The company claims zero liability for the shooting, but the plaintiffs hold it fully responsible because they say its marketing encourages violence. Remington has consistently held that it had no role in the shooting. The attorneys for the company claim that it should not be a defendant in the case because they have no power to regulate how customers may use their product. Nevertheless, the Supreme Court denied their effort to block the lawsuit. The families of those murdered at Sandy Hook claim that Remington marketed their guns with ads that encouraged the wanton slaying of children and that they should therefore be held responsible for their actions. The Connecticut Supreme Court ruled 4-3 to three that Remington can be sued because of the way the AR-15 style Bushmaster rifle was marketed. That's the kind of gun that the shooter in, at Sandy Hook that he used. 
The family's lawsuit contends that Remington glorified the gun in advertising aimed at young people, including in violent video games. Remington claims that their ads are based on the idea that is embodied in the Second Amendment, that when citizens possess firearms, they are better able to protect themselves from tyranny. Because, should the Second Amendment fall, so will our freedom. There's an interesting and terrifying phenomenon occurring throughout our country. We've talked about this many times, and in a discussion about guns, it is appropriate to talk about it again. We are getting to be a people deeply divided, and we have lost our manners. We are getting increasingly violent. I live near a city that only a decade ago was as quiet and graceful a city as you would want. The people were known for their friendliness, and the city was known for its safety. But in the last few years, that has all been rapidly disappearing. Now on the evening news, there is a report of a shooting almost every night. How is this possible? Murders, reckless driving that end in fatal crashes, anger spilling over into the streets against relatives, friends, and strangers. What is happening to us? We have become rude and selfish and violent and we don't know how to find our way back to civility. It's complex, and it's hard to find the place to begin, but we need to start somewhere. Our legislators are not setting a very good example for us, I'm afraid. The bad behavior that we saw in the impeachment hearings was absolutely shameful. Rather than quenching the anger, they inflamed it. And these are the men and women we have chosen to lead us. So I think the leadership has to come from us. We need to be the ones who can lead by example. That's little enough to do. And at the same time, we need to be able to stand up for ourselves and protect the people we love. I like what Teddy Roosevelt said, speak softly and carry a big stick. Because even as we chart a course for civility, we also need to be ready to protect ourselves and our families and the freedom that our country represents. That is what America stands for. And you know what? I'm for it. One last story I want to share with you. On Tuesday, four people were killed in a shootout in Jersey City. Two shooters were also killed. Among those who died was a police officer and three shoppers in a kosher grocery store. The mayor tweeted that night that authorities had come to the conclusion that the store had been targeted based on their ongoing investigation into the shootout that left so many people dead. We will know more in the days to come, but it appears at the moment that if the store was targeted, as the mayor suggests, it might well be an act of violent anti-Semitism. Now, we don't know very much about it, but we do know that anti-Semitism is growing very rapidly in the United States and around the world, like a cancer. I will talk more about this in depth next week, so I hope you will tune in. It's a very important subject, and it speaks to the tenor of the times. 
As always, I have enjoyed spending this hour with you, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Do you have any comments that you'd like to make? I always ask you this, and, uh, and then sometimes I forget, but I'm really interested in hearing from you. If you have something you want to say, if you agree with me or don't agree with me, that's okay. Let me know. Send me an email to alana at americaoutloud.com. I'll get it, I'll read it, and I'll answer it. Let me hear from you. We're just about out of time. Thank you for spending this hour with me. As always, I enjoy the time we spend together, and I look forward to being with you again next week. And I want you to know, as always, it's just been great spending this hour with you. In the meantime, be safe and Godspeed. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report. Thank you.